Welcome to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support. Our current series of characters in livestock still running on Top Lines and Tales, and they don't get much more of a character in livestock than my guest this week, Ken Fletcher, editor of The Scottish Farmer, all-round racketeer, and, uh, and good guy there. Fletch, welcome to Top Lines and Tales. Hi, welcome to you too, Andy. And uh, Fletch, the rumours have been going around for a while, obviously, that uh, you're due for retirement from that job shortly. So we're going to have a chat to a little bit about where you came from and how you got there. And the other rumour that I've applied for the, your job uh, is, is totally unfounded there. Please uh, scratch that one. <laughs> uh, there's always a rumour in farming, Andy, and this is just the start of plenty more, I'm sure of it. <laughs> Let's just go back to the beginnings with you, Fletch. Where are you from originally? I came from Houston in Renfrewshire, not Texas. Okay. Um, and I was uh, doing a year's practical before I went to Auchincrew to do an HND in agriculture. And this job came up and I applied for it and I got it. Um, so I never actually went to Auchincrew. At that time, money was a wee bit tight and jobs were scarce. So I decided to go with the job in hand rather than do three years at college and then come out with a prospect of no job. So that's when I joined the Scotch Farmer. Um, I had my interview with the late editor of the time, Angus MacDonald, and he said to me, do you like, fly? I hear you like fly fishing? And I said, yes. And he said, do you tie your own flies? And I said, yes. And he said, when can you start? <laughs> so that was it. I've never had an interview like that in my pub before, where the, the ability to tie your own flies was deemed to be a good thing. Not not do up your own flies, but tie them, yeah, a different thing. <laughs> well, that's a different thing altogether, Andy, as you well know. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's you pretty much uh, straight from school then, Fletch? Uh, yeah, well, as I said, I was, doing, I was milking cows on a dairy farm, uh, in Houston, they had about 120 British Frisians as they were at that time. Ah, I quite enjoyed it. Um, I must be one of the few people in the world who had a picture of a, a a bull called Annandale Olympus up in the wall, rather than that tennis girl who scratches her bare bum as she walks away from you. <laughs> I think I had a combine harvester on mine for a while. I think the girl with scratching her bum came later, to be fair. <laughs> that makes you as sad as I am. <laughs> yeah, that's probably so. Probably so. And uh, you said Angus was in charge then. And what, what did you start, T-Boy? Oh, the first, first job was more or less a T-Boy. They called it a cub reporter, where you were a general dog's body. Um, uh, got a pretty good grounding, because in those days... There was no mobile phones. Um, we only had we had individual phones in the office, of course, a, a direct line, and we had a little uh, TARDIS of a thing where you would go into and if you needed to have a private conversation. There was no computers back then. <clears throat> when I started, we were still printing the, the Scottish Farmer at what we call hot metal. In other words, they set the type in lead, and you could always tell a hot metal compositor by the burns on his arms where the, he would get the odd splash from the hot hot metal as it went into the moulds. <laughs> quite a change 
uh, going from that to where we are now. Well, certainly digital changed everything, didn't it? But I mean, so you would go then, you'd be reporting stories maybe that you'd hear about within the agricultural community or were you on the, straight into the shows and the pedigree livestock side of it? That was mainly straight into the, the shows and the livestock side of it. Um, that That's what the bread and butter for the, of the Scottish farmer is. Um, but occasionally you'd be asked to do a kind of news story. I think the first story I ever did actually was about the weather. And uh, some things never change because we're still talking about the weather even now. <laughs> it, it was it was obviously better back then, Ken. Everyone says that. Was it the weather? Well, I can remember the summer of 1976. Me too. Being, in, being at Ayrshaw. And that was B at the very beginning of May. And there were some young farmers' girls there in bikinis, <laughs> which I, I seem to have stuck with me that image ever since. And I don't think I've ever seen a girl at a show in a bikini again since. Certainly not at the air show. Every time I've been to air show, it's been pushing my rain. So you must have caught a good one. But seventy-six was a dry year, as you said. There. So that was that was you getting started there. And you, you, um, your brother was also at the Scottish farm. But did he start before you at the same time? How did that work? Alistair was there before me, and he had left, uh, and that's the vacancy that I'd gone for. So I think he'd been left for about a month before I went, uh, before I joined the, the Scottish farmer. And then, of course, he he came back uh, just a few years later as the deputy editor. Right. And by that time, I think I was the business editor, which meant I looked after the the, mainly the sales section of the paper and doing trend stories and what was beef going up and sheep coming down and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, you know, my grounding was in going to shows and sales. So, I, you know, I, it, for somebody who enjoys that kind of thing, it's a dream job. Um, I mean, I, unfortunately, I mean, we've got a vacancy at the moment for one such start and we have had very few replies of anyone from agriculture that's interested in it. Really? Yeah, Funnily enough, there was a postman from Manchester that thought he could do it, but I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> no, the thing is, in that job, you get to know everybody, and very quickly as well, you get to know everybody, and you need to know everybody, and what's a bit like the job I do, I suppose, that you get to know everybody and what's going on, just to keep the, keep the news coming, and it's all about contacts, and, and uh, you'd have made a lot of contacts very quickly, I guess. I think, you know, one of the best things about that was that the one or two people took me under their wing. And one was the, the late George McElraith from Belig. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met so many different people through George and his contacts, both here and in Ireland and in England. Um, and, you know, I'm ever so grateful for people like him. You know, in later years, it would be Gavin Shanks, mm-hmm. uh, John Hornell, uh, even Lord Richard Wellesley. <laughs> we used to go to events together and you would meet such a diverse range of people that it's, you know, it's, it's a, actually it's a wonderful industry to be involved in. If, if you want to, you know, if you want to find out something, you just ask a pal and he will know someone who knows someone else. <laughs> so it's in that respect, it's been a fantastic journey through the through the industry since 1977. Can, can, can be a bit dangerous asking a pal who will ask a pal because when you've got to write it down, once it's written down, it's got to be right. But I know what you're saying. But going back to George McElwraith, of course, you know, short finger, we've talked about him before on, on the podcast here, but some man, wasn't he a man into all sorts of things, would turn a trick on anything. He was, uh, you know, it, 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 
in many respects, he might have been a, a wee bit ahead of his time because mm-hmm. um, he invested in some of the exotic breeds. Um, I think probably maybe one of his downfalls was to take the Roman Eulers a bit too seriously. And there are not many of them left now, if, if any at all, in the UK. I mean, he should have taken the leaf out of some other people's books when the Roman Eulers came into the UK. The first thing they did was resell them to the US and some people made a lot of money by doing that mm-hmm. but George stuck by them and as as you know he had he had several parts of his fingers missing and mm-hmm. I was there one day when they tried to sell a bull and he was asked how much was that one and he held up this hand that had about you know several fingers missing and the guy said is that one and a half two and a half or five <laughs> Uh, brilliant! No, he was uh, he was some character and got into the rouge, of course, as well, didn't he? Uh, and Georgia, he made money at a lot of things, really. And, and and John as well, of course, young John or Jock, as we know him, getting into the in, in Billy getting into the Beltex as well. And interesting, interesting family and interesting mentor, as he said. You know, I think I think both of them had their grounding in Border Leicester sheep and, and Ayrshire cattle, mm-hmm. which was very much the kind of in thing in the sixties and seventies. Um, but George had could see, you know, once he'd sold the dairy herd, he could see that there were thick changes happening in the beef world. So, you know, in a way, as I said earlier, they're a wee bit ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. But whatever they did, they did it very well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a good stocksman will t- be able to turn uh, a collie dog into a world beater, mm-hmm. if you ask me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, certainly able of doing that. And another man you would have had on, would take you under your wing, perhaps would have been Jack Young, of course, at uh, UA. Uh, yes, uh, Jack was uh, very kind to me, and at, at one of my first uh, bull sales in Perth, he invited me into the what they call was the wee room behind the bar, where it was a kind of free for all. Some of the major buyers were in there, some of the major breeders. So, yeah, it was one of these cases where you didn't actually have to go far to do your job because they all came to you in that little room. But it, could have been, it was a bit dangerous because he always. Uh, he always asked for a, a large gin uh, and 50-50 with a tonic and plenty of tonic. You know, so. <laughs> a serious man. And and, uh, and the sheep world, you got involved in sheep. With, it, with yourself and your brother, you got involved in, in, in Suffolk sheep. When I remember back in the 90s, would that be, uh, um, Fletch? Yeah, Alison and I had Suffolk sheep from about the, the late 70s, actually. Uh-huh. Um. I w- we bought them from a guy called Jock Allen, who many people will remember. With Beltex. Uh, with Beltex. But he was into Suffolk Sheep before that. Um, and he was uh, one of the greatest mentors you could ever have because he, when he, he guided us very smoothly through the transition of picking the sheep into really good ones. You know, many, many a guy would have tried to fob you off with a lot of crap. But Jock Allen gave us three or four really cracking ewes to start the flock. And the only thing, he, the only advice he gave him was he said, treat them like a dairy coo when, you, with, when you're feeding them. And he wasn't far wrong, because <laughs> these bloody big suffers could eat some chuck, I'll tell you. They seriously could, and if you didn't feed them, they, they, they never turned out any, well, never turned out any good, certainly if you're the shows that you go to. But you won your, you won your share at the shows as well didn't, with them, didn't you? Oh, mainly kind of local stuff, you know, but I, I got really quite involved in it and enjoyed it really very much. Another guy to help me in that respect was Ian Anderson, um, who the stockman who now in Cumnock, 
But he, he was into Suffolk's as well at that time. And he was a great inspiration, a great help. Um, and the other one to help me in that respect was the late Ian Gilmer of Humiston, mm-hmm. who, you know, kind of put his arm around me and gave me a, a bit of advice at every show we would meet at. Uh, you know, these were in North Ayrshire and Renfrewshire shows. So these guys were all all about winning, but it, it, it didn't mean that they didn't help some of the youngsters who were trying to show sheep at the same time. I think that's still, there's still that ethos there today, isn't it? That, and I tell that to, to youngsters starting out there, go out and ask the guys that, that you respect and you know, they won't turn you down. You go and ask them for advice, they won't, they won't turn you down. It's, uh, if they do turn you down, ask somebody else. But it's about learning from the older generation, isn't it? But you'd, you'd have been in the time with the Suffolk when uh, the High Flyers would be in there, I suppose, sort of in, certainly into the 90s when the, the mayors at Muresk averaging 10 grand for 10 tops at, at, at Edinburgh, etc. Yeah. Got serious, didn't it? Yeah, I can remember Mures dancing brave. I can't remember just exactly what he made, but I think it would be about 18,000 guineas. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was at uh, I was at Perth when uh, Charlie started to get on big style. Uh, Mary director at 56k. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been one of the kind of Great moment, great things about the job is to be there when such things happen. Well, you, you know, being at a blackie sale when two twin brothers made 150 grand between them. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, some of these things will stay with you forever. They are, and the memories out there, well, the, the times, they are electric as well. But you guys would always, the Scottish farmer would always be renowned compared to any other paper that I know of anyway, worldwide, I think, would renowned. It seemed to capture that atmosphere in your articles when you were sort of portraying, always had the hey, good photographers, we've chatted to Fraser before, John Fraser before now on here as well, and good photographers putting them right, but you just seem to make that atmosphere come through in, in, in your articles, I think, and that's that's about being there and knowing the people, isn't it? Yeah, but it, the origins of the Scottish farmer go way back to, uh, you know, the 1893. That's it's 130 years old this year. And that's one of the reasons that I'm retiring is I suddenly realised I'd been there for a third of its lifetime. Because <laughs> you think 130 years is a long time, but it's not really when, you, when you've been there for 46 of them. No. But we it goes back that we go back to being owned by... You know, the likes of Campbell McPherson Grant at Ballandallar. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Charles Howitson of Glen Buck, who yep. was very famous for breeding black sheep. And even the chairman of the time uh, of the General Accident Company put money in to start the Scottish Farmer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's what their business was. They were very much into the livestock and, and improving livestock and I think over the years, maybe that's where the Scottish farmer succeeded better than most um, in that it was able to capture what was happening in the show and sale ring, but also give a steer as to what might be happening in the future or what was needed in the future. Certainly, again, we've chatted through this in the past, I think, but uh, Charles Howitson, I think there was a story about him buying a top and then sending it back in a taxi, wasn't there? But uh, he was certainly, uh, Glenn Buck was certainly some character, and yeah, he had he had quite a control over the paper, didn't he, back, right back at the very early days? Oh, yes, I, I mean, these guys, they, they, didn't, they didn't start the newspaper just to be uh, silent partners. Mm. But having said that, the, the first editor at the time was a guy called Archibald McNeilage, who obviously I never got to meet, but he was also secretary of the Clydesdale Horse Society at that time. So he had 
he had quite a firm grip on what went in the paper, and he, and he he was quite well known for resisting the temptation of some of the owners to put their oar in when when they least needed to do so. <laughs> And uh, going back to that, you're reporting at the shows. So you basically get in amongst those, and it's not just about this animal winning this show. There, you, you you get the stories out of people. I mean, Patsy does it does it still at um at the shows where she'll come along and she wants to know the history of the animal, where it bought it, where it came from, what its grandmother cost, and, and it, you get a bit more you get a bit more of the story in there than just just the basic sheep. And I think that's what makes it makes it interesting to all of us. Yeah, it's 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 one of the strange things if, uh, that comes to you if you are interested in it, and you know. Most of the people I've ever worked for the Scottish Farmer have have been interested in the stock that they're reporting in. So, you know, it's it's like a busman's holiday for us to go to a show. Um, but the other side of that is that when you're out and about and you're speaking to people, you pick up little snippets of other things mm-hmm. that you can follow up at a later date. And it's 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 a very kind of unique thing to the Scottish Farmer that we still we still have our ear to the ground in that respect and. The attendance that shows for me is still very much part of the news gathering section of the paper and not just the show reporting part of it because that's when you hear all the little things about milk prices and what they're doing to people and who's coming out of a farm. Um, You know, there's a lot of wee snippets that you can pick up, even at the smallest in the local shows. Mm -hmm. The fact I'm going to one on Saturday that would be probably one of the smaller shows in the ocean. And I'll guarantee you I will pick something up at that show that will be in the Scottish Farmer in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> that brings me nicely round to somebody called the Raider uh, Fletch. And uh, the, the Raider column was something that everybody looked forward to for, for a long, long time. It, uh, as long as you weren't in it, which I, unfortunately I was in it a couple of times. But uh, you, that's where, where... And some of that would come from being at the parties as well. I mean, people used to look at us and we were all drinking away and sounds like, we're, yeah, we're, we're a bunch of pissheads. But uh, that's where the, that, that crack came from and that's where the stories came from wasn't it uh, talking about a bunch of pissheads over the years since i've been at the scottish farmer i wouldn't like to put it in a pail and start drinking it all again <laughs> um because that one of the one of the things that is great about agriculture is the kind of camaraderie and the and the little you know apre show parties and the kiss parties at the highland show being you know probably the pinnacle for me um but you know, as you say, that's all part of it. It's all part of the deal. When you when you buy into it and you and you're interested in it, that's what you buy into. You buy into the people, and you buy into the personalities. And it's been fantastic for, you know, broadening the the mind a wee bit. And, and going going back to the radio, though, as I said, the, the only newspaper I think that could do that, I suppose, is daily papers maybe do this stuff, but in the agriculture that can find these stories and then have a, have a vehicle just to pile them into and just take the take the piss out of people. And uh, I think if you're not in it, it was just it was even when you were in it, to be fair, picked out by the radio, it's right. just, just hilarious crack. It was the first page I always turned to in the Scottish Farmer. The the radio kind of died with COVID, you know, um, and. The ability to not have people making an ass of themselves basically kind of put a, put the death nail on the on the radar column. Um, in fact, you know, one of the things I might do before I depart is to kind of resurrect it a wee bit uh-huh. um, because I'm I'm well aware of the fact that people like to have a laugh every now and again, and sometimes we can all be take things a wee bit too seriously about. 
politics and the price of this, the price of that, the weather and everything. And sometimes we just maybe need to lighten the load a wee bit. So I take, you know, I, I very much take on board what you're saying about the, the radar column because it was always a kind of first stop for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the, the, the chap who used to do the really pointed and very good cartoons to go along with it is no longer fit to do so. Okay. So that another that was another reason why we kind of desisted from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can see, you know, having been at the Highland Show this year, there are still people out there making a right backside of themselves, so it's time to resurrect that again, I would guess. <laughs> you've, got, you've got a perfect chance to do now, Ken. They're not going to fire you this day, this late stage, so you've got a perfect chance to do that. But no, it, 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 it is brilliant. And as you said, people people having crack and having a laugh, though. I mean, the COVID obviously drove that home to a lot of us, and all of a sudden people were stuck at home for a year and a half, not even getting out the road end. And, and uh, you realise then how important the shows are for folks to get out there and do and have that crack, even if it's just, just to, you know, the jokes that you've been saving up, like you've always got a joke around the corner, the jokes that you've been saving up there just to, to air them out in public and, along with a few of your mates. The biggest problem with jokes now, Andy, is that the, the internet has killed everything. Everybody has heard the joke before it ever gets round, whereas we used to just use word of mouth to get it round. <laughs> that's true. Um, and, you know, and that's the same for agricultural news as well. It's very difficult to keep a story for yourself that appears in the paper on a, a Saturday that nobody else knows about. And I suppose that's one of the jobs that we do. But it's increasingly difficult in the digital age to, you know, keep something really special to go in the paper for the Friday and Saturday that it comes out. And it's one of the big challenges for anybody who's in this industry at the minute is to generate something that other people want. Uh, We call them USBs, a unique selling point. Mm -hmm. I think the Scottish farmer does it pretty well um, up to a point, um, and I'm sure it will continue to, to do so. But it is a big challenge mm-hmm. uh, to counter what the digital age has brought to news gathering and news information spreading. You've always still got a good joke for me. I remember the one you told me about a chiropractor about a week back. Oh, no, that, that's, that's, a really, that's a really bad joke, sorry. Um, <laughs> Come on, Fletch. <laughs> uh, just, just moving on, moving on to to your own climb up the tree, as it were. Then uh, you eventually took on the job of editor. How long ago has that been? Now you took over from your brother, I believe. Yep, I took over from Alistair uh, six years ago, uh, past in May. Um, and of course, we've had a lot of stuff uh, since then. The COVID years weren't very good for anybody, um, but it was a, you know, I'd, I'd gone from an office environment on a Friday to being housebound on the Monday and never having had to produce a Scottish farmer from your kitchen table. Um, it was quite a challenge. And it's, uh, I think it's testament to the staff of the Scottish farmer uh, and everybody involved in that from all sides of the, the coin that produced the paper on a uh, on a Friday that we managed to do it on time and we never missed a deadline, um, which is quite a feat when you consider that we didn't have all the connections in place that we we should have had to, you know for this kind of thing. We used to be in uh, Renfield Street in Glasgow and our lease was up for let at the end of March that year, and you know. 
during negotiations, the the lettees were um, playing hardball with it and wanted much more money. So we could see this coming, and the, the boss at the time, given his due, he uh, he said, "No, we're not doing it. We're going to operate from home, so you can bugger off. You're not getting your increase. We'll do without an office for a wee while because it's coming anyway." And that saved, uh, probably saved the newspapers uh, industry in Scotland or, or our part of the newspaper industry because it saved £1.2 million a year mm-hmm. in rent and rates, mm-hmm. which gave us a little bit of a cushion to ride out the storm of COVID, which, sure. um, you know, everybody, there, there wasn't any business in the UK that wasn't affected by COVID. No, but it also we realised the power of the Scottish farmer, I guess, again, going back to COVID uh, I don't want to harp on about the COVID years nobody wants to, but that time when we were all stuck at home, then getting that uh, or getting to your post office or getting that uh, Scottish farmer through your through your door on a Friday morning um, was absolutely paramount to to, uh, to people's existence, really, and that's the, the only, you know, I suppose they had the phone to pick up and talk to people, but generally that it, it, it became even more important, didn't it? The, the, the new new side of it. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's a good point, and it, it's it's one of the things that probably we can all be proud of over the years since I, well, since before I worked at the Scottish Farmer. But we we came through BSE, mm-hmm. we came through foot and mouth, and latterly it was COVID. So, you know, during my time there, we've come through some really big crises mm-hmm. that have affected not just businesses but also the mental health of the people involved in those businesses and I think that's maybe one of the areas where the Scottish farmer has helped uh, in some small way at least was to keep people sane and keep them thinking about that they weren't the only ones who were in you know some kind of bother uh, with these uh, scourges that seem to happen every now and again just to take the edge off of agriculture. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, absolutely true. But it's just going back to the editor, stepping up to the job of editor. What what does being an editor involve? Like, obviously, you're still going out to the shows and getting you some reporting done, but now the responsibility becomes a lot harder on that. Are you pulling the entire paper together and calling the shots as to who does what? Is, is that what, what you do as an editor? Yeah, well, you know, it's I'm very lucky to have been surrounded by really, really good and clever people who you know without actually micromanaging them do their job to their utmost you know people like Patsy and Julie and John Slays there now we've had in the past we had Dougie Skimming and Gordon Davidson you know guys with a whole lot of experience behind them and it's it's not that difficult to edit a paper when people are quite good at their jobs where the difficulty comes is to, uh, I'm the cushion between them and the corporate wallers. And, uh, you know, that's sometimes where I, I have to dig my heels in a little bit and act on my reader's behalf and also the rest of the staff's behalf. Mm-hmm. And it's something that maybe a lot of people don't realise happens behind the scenes, but there's a lot of paperwork involved. Um my, but, you know, as you pointed out earlier on, I have got a lot of contacts in the industry and I tend to hear a lot of things on the QT, on the phone call, but, you know, kind of, it wasn't me that told you, but that kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, it happens in a 
weekly basis, a daily basis even. Um, and then it's up to me to decide whether to act on it at the moment or keep it up my sleeve for another opportunity. Or or sometimes we just say, do you know what? I think highlighting that will not help anybody. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, going to say, really. Sometimes upsets, upsets people, mm. but, you know, sometimes it's better to, you know, play things down a wee bit rather than go full hog just for the sake of a one big story. Because mm-hmm. agriculture can be very unforgiving in that respect. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you let someone down, you've let them down forever. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not just a kind of one off. Mm-hmm. And go, but going back to the early days, I mean, the change would be. I know you said the change from obviously from analog to digital, but the change from the editor being the boss to to by the time you got there of course you're owned by a huge conglomerate corporation so you're you're answering quite a long way up the chain where it's going back the way they had they had carte blanche to print what they wanted and when they wanted i guess so uh your, your hands would be a little bit more tied in your job than maybe you know um angus donald all those years ago i think yeah i think you're you're right you know the corporate nature of newspapers any newspaper these days is is, is a, a veritable minefield that is kind of dogged by some people who think they know but don't. Um, luckily, the Scottish farmer was quite a small cog in a very big wheel, but it was a cog that nobody understood how it worked. So we were more or less left alone as long as we, uh, you know, as long as we performed financially, which we have done. Um, you know, the Scottish farmer has been a profitable newspaper in all the years I've been there. Um, some years will be more than most. So as long as you can do that, you tend to keep the corporate wallas tend to stay away from you. And because they don't understand agriculture, you're able to, you know, kind of bamboozle them a bit. I can say this now that I'm retiring. So <laughs> Gonna if say. Some of them are listening. You've been bamboozled over the last few years. <laughs> You've bamboozled a few people over the years yourself, Fetcher. And um, let's move in away from that then. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you're retiring, I think, in probably be two weeks today. I think you'll be handing, handing back your whatever it is that you, that you hung on to, to to be that editorship. And that's you, uh, a retired man. Where are we going now? After dinner speaking, maybe? You know, Andy, I have I have no firm plans made yet. I'm, I'm just uh, going to take stock of myself and what I want to do over the next uh, couple of months or so, um, and we'll see what goes from there. I'm going to be still quite heavily involved in the Scottish Farmer, believe it or not. I'm doing some of the judging panel for the Scottish Agriculture Awards, which the Scottish Farmer is running in conjunction with RAS okay. and AgriScot. And I think this is, uh, it's actually one of the things that's been on my mind for about the last 10 years that the industry tends to do itself down too much. And in Scotland, we have some fantastic businesses, some fantastic livestock, and it's time we started shouting from the rooftops about how good we actually are. Mm-hmm. And it, it's within the Scottish psyche to be a wee bit reticent about these things. But I think it's time we stood up and be counted and show what a professional, business-like industry that we we operate. And, and that's part of the remit of the Scottish Agriculture Awards. Okay. So I'm, I'll be part of that, and hopefully I'll be part of the ceremony when it happens on October the 26th. 
Okay, I, I, I didn't get my entry in this year for the top lines of tails, but up there. But now I know you're judged. That'll be favoritism, because so I'll not put that one in this year. But no, that's brilliant. You're doing that, and we, we talked again on this show a while ago about your old friend Donald Bigger, who was involved, obviously, in in being on the, uh, this board and that board, and, and and giving his expertise back in there. Is there a place for you there to be get a get a few non-exec jobs there? You can use some of your historic knowledge to uh, to to help other organisations. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that, you know, Donald Bigger is one of the reasons why I'm considering retiring early. Simply because, you know, it brought it home to me that life is a bit fragile sometimes. And sometimes it's time to look after you rather than do someone else's bidding. Um, So I can't really afford to retire. But in many respects, I, I cannot afford not to retire. So um, it's time for a wee bit of time for me. I may take up a bit more fishing with my chums, which is a very, very dangerous pastime. I've managed to lose two phones in the last two outings, so um, I've no idea what happened to them, but they're both at the bottom of a lock somewhere. I'm told somebody said the other day you like going out in a boat. Since uh, whether the fishing fishing gets done or not, you like going out in the boat. Not like me. I went out fishing with my neighbours Ron, Rod, and Annette the other day. You'll know them, of course. Um, that's another joke there, Fletch. Sorry. Uh, um, yes. Uh, yes. Almost. <laughs> almost. No. The, the, the fishing side of it, and again, you mentioned a couple of your chums there, Gavin Shanks and and and, uh, and Donald Bigger and what have you. You still do get out there a bit of a bit of trout fishing on the locks. Yes, uh, three men afloat in a boat with a bottle of Boona Haven is quite a thing. Um, we do it on a regular basis. There's still about six to eight of us who, on a regular basis, uh, by regular, I mean three times a year, head for the likes of Noida or the Tay or something like that, just for a... It's it's really a jamboree. I think the, the angling side of it takes uh, second... as a secondary thing. Having said that, because our respective wives are kind of assuming that we are going fishing. We've had to accumulate quite a lot of tackle over the years. And I think between us all, we could start up a shop uh, with the almost, almost used fishing rods and reels. <laughs> almost used <laughs> and you, and you mentioned the wives, of course, Fiona, your, your lovely wife there um, will be absolutely not knowing what to do with you kicking around the house, so she'll probably be sending you off fishing. Will although she tends to get travelling a fair bit herself. Yes, I, I mean Fiona is, is another one of the reasons why I want to spend time with her, mm-hmm. um, and she, well, fortunately for her, and sometimes fortunately for me, she goes off on long trips with her job as a tour guide with Field Farm Tours. So I think there's, you know, there's opportunities there too for me to go along as a kind of passenger as well mm-hmm. hold the jackets as they say um i could uh, you know there's a, a trip planned i think next january to argentina mm-hmm. i've always fancied going there but could never really justify the time when i was with the scottish farmer so that might be a, a wee outing for me um <laughs> canada or whatever it's time to see the world in my Terms. Sure, 
you've unveiled that one because that was to be a top lines and tails trip going in January to Argentina. So something will be made fairly public fairly soon uh, that uh, kind of right time of year really to go to Argentina and the right time of year for Scottish farmers maybe to get a little bit of time away in those dark winter nights. So I think a couple of weeks from the 4th of January, you watch this space. But uh, if we're both on that trip together, Fletch, we'll certainly find some good uh, Molbecks down in that part of the world as well as Angus Cattle, I guess. I would say it would be fairly dangerous. <laughs> and because you've moved down to Dumfries, uh, last time I was down into your garden, uh, growing, growing vegetables. Somebody said to me recently, one one minute you're young, hip, and carefree, and the next you're in your garden taking photos of your vegetables, and kind of became a bit of a passion for you as well, growing growing food. Well, I, I think it was lockdown that did that for everybody. You know, uh, part of the getting away from being out. We're lucky to have a, a fairly substantial garden, so you're able to get out and about a wee bit. And it always occurred to me that you would have hated to have been someone in a 21-storey high-rise flat during lockdown. It must have been purgatory. And at least we were able to get out and about. I mean, the, the, one of the things that we're hoping to do this year, we've got an apple tree that looks as if it's going to have about 5 million tonnes of apples. So we're going to research making our own cider this time. Well, so that sounds, maybe I won't make January. <laughs> that sounds a dangerous trip. If next time I'm coming down, down the 74 there, down the M6, I'll, uh, if I call in there for a taste of that, could we, you could lose a couple of days of your life, I'd imagine, after, after drinking that stuff. But no, you, you need to get some dead rats. Or your, or your life. Yeah, or, that, or your life, indeed. You can need to put some dead rats in there to ferment that as well. That seems to be the secret where I grew up anyway. That's, that's what they put in the food in the bath. I, I, I don't think we'll go quite that far, right? <laughs> By the way, have you tried the horse manure in your rhubarb? <laughs> I've tried everything in the rhubarb, but it, uh, it doesn't seem to be doing well this year for some reason. The, okay, the right answer is no, I prefer custard. Sorry, Fletch, I'm getting these jokes in there and they're all falling flat on their ass, to be honest. <laughs> mm. Anyway, um, so so that's that's you, as I said, we're all getting a bit older now, and uh, but you'll still be out and about at the shows, won't you? I mean, everybody expect to still see you for a yarn. You'll have more time to have a bit more of a yarn if you're not, if you're not working, maybe. Yeah, but you know, I'll, be, I'll still be doing the odd show report for the Scottish Farmer. That's that's for sure. Uh -huh. um, and one of those will definitely this year be my favourite show, which is Isla Show, uh -huh. which is uh, they call it the Whiskey Olympics. So unfortunately, Fiona's not able to go this year. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'll be on my own. <laughs> But I may have to take a couple of pals with me just to look after me and make sure that I don't get into any trouble. And a driver and a spare, um, spare ambulance I, standing by. <laughs> well, you don't need a, a driver in Isla. We have a, something called Huey Taxi, okay. who comes and gets you, not at the designated hour, but whenever he feels like it. Okay. So you have to become flexible when you go to the islands. <laughs> um, of course, one of the one of the big things about Isla Show is there are now, I think there's maybe at least a dozen distilleries on the island, mm. and they, they're they all fighting to sponsor the show. Can you imagine how <laughs> great that is? <laughs> Brilliant. And your favourite, of course, Bonohaban. I was going to mention whiskey, your favourite whiskey, Bonohaban, and I imagine that there'll be a few bottles coming your way at retirement, retirement to keep you going for at least a few weeks, into the winter anyway. Yes, well, if anybody's listening out there, Bonohaban uh, is the chosen tipple. Um, no, I, you know, it's one of these things that, uh, I was there, uh, not that long ago and from the distillery, you can see Collinsy and Mull and Jura mm. and I, on a, on a good day, 
it's one of those sights that just gladdens the heart. Sure. Um, and with a big drama, it's even better. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I've just been on the Isle of Harris and the, the Harris Distillery that makes the Harris Gin, which is so nice. They're telling me their their new whiskey is just about to come out, so they're going to Harris is going to start competing on those those islands there with a PT one as well, by the sound of it. But now Isla somewhere I've never been, and I would like to go to the Isla show. It's definitely on my bucket list to get there. Well, I'm going again this year, so second uh, Thursday in August. Okay. Okay, well, we'll see what we can do. See All we, comers welcome. We'll see what we can do. Well, Fletch, everybody listening to this will wish you well um, in your coming retirement. And uh, I believe you're down to the Yorkshire show next week, so uh, I'll be down there as well. Hopefully we'll get a chance to have a couple of drams together there and, and celebrate and, uh, and and keep on doing that as well. So uh, yeah, from Top Lines and Tales and everybody out there, just congratulations on your stint at the Scottish Farmer and, and, and the Scottish Farmer itself, how well it's doing and, and on your retirement. Well, thank you, and thanks to everybody who's going to listen to this diatribe. <laughs> Cheers, Fletch. All the best, my friend. Welcome to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support. And Harbro, of course, are suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition and nutritional advice. And uh, and you'll notice if you do good some of the shows or see the reports in the paper there that uh, a lot of the these winning animals are fed on Harbro feed. And that's no accident that you know, Harbro have been involved in feeding quality livestock for shows and and commercially for a, a number of years. That's indeed that's where they were they were founded. So look out Harbro on the internet or on social media. And while you're on social media, don't forget to follow. Follow our Top Lines and Tales uh, podcast, please, uh, which will allow you to get uh, notified when a new episode comes out there and also to join our Top Lines and Tales Facebook group there. We have a community of us uh, that like to add um, photographs and other information backing up this and further episodes. <laughs>